Well, as we continue our, our series on the parables of Jesus, today we come to perhaps the most famous of Jesus' parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Really, of all the parables, only the Good Samaritan is close in terms of how influential this parable is. Most people are familiar with the prodigal son, even if they don't know the Bible very well. And I think this parable has left a tremendous impact even on the whole of Western society. The parable has been the subject of art and music and plays and movies. Throughout time, people have recognized just the sheer brilliance and power of this story. Literary geniuses like Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, and Ralph Waldo Emerson refer to it as the greatest short story. William Shakespeare utilized it numerous times in his various works. The great British poet Robert Bridges called it, quote, a flawless piece of art. Another esteemed British poet, William Cowper, said, The parable of the prodigal son, the most beautiful fiction that ever was invented, our Savior's speech to his disciples, with which he closed his, his earthly ministrations, full of the sublimest dignity and tenderest affection, surpass everything that I ever read. As, a, as great as it is in terms of a piece of literature, we also know that more importantly, Jesus taught us this to impart spiritual lessons. And this parable has left a tremendous mark on the church. Some have called it the pearl of the parables, and some have said that it is really the essence of the Christian faith, encapsulated in a short story. In my mind, I think the story resonates with so many of us because of its vivid depiction of turning away from God and then tasting the bitter fruits of our choices. It also is a story of hope because we find in this glorious picture of the Father who symbolizes God such a, an incredible depiction of compassion and grace. What a picture we see of God from this story. The parable also has the power to convict us because there's a third character in the story, the elder brother, who is proud and self-righteous and looks down on his younger brother. All three figures are so captivating and contribute much to our understanding of God and ourselves. Now I'm going to stick with the traditional title calling it the prodigal, parable of the prodigal son. But keep in mind that all three characters are vitally important to the story. The parable unfolds in such a way that it focuses first on the prodigal son, then the father, and then the elder brother. That's how I'm going to approach it. We're going to look today at the focusing first on the prodigal son, and then we'll come back next week and look at the father's reaction to the prodigal son, as well as the elder brother. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles there, page 874. We're going to pick up in verse 1. As Jesus tells actually a series of three parables, all focusing on the theme of once being lost and now being found by God. Okay? And so the third parable, the prodigal son, is the climactic parable. So Luke chapter 
15, if you would turn with me there. You'll see in verses 1 and 2 an introductory comment that is really important. It says in verse 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Luke mentions the Pharisees and the scribes. Now these are very important background figures in this story, so it's important to just take a moment here and remind ourselves of who these individuals were. The Pharisees were one of the most prominent Jewish sects. They were influential on the local synagogue level throughout the region of Palestine. They were a little bit different than, say, the Sadducees who were very prominent in Jerusalem with the temple. They were more on the local synagogue level. They were very influential. They were known for their commitment to Scripture as well as their commitment to the oral traditions that were added to the Old Testament law. Now, their motives may have been partially good, but what developed as these oral traditions kind of contributed over time was this legalistic, stifling view of the Old Testament. Salvation kind of morphed into keeping the Old Testament law and these, Old Test- and these oral laws as instead of salvation being a matter of receiving God's gracious gift of salvation. So, as for the scribes, they weren't a religious sect like the Pharisees, but they were the teachers and the interpreters of the law. They also served kind of in a judicial function, pronouncing judgment on cases that would come to them. Scribes were found in all the various Jewish sects, though most of them were probably aligned with the Pharisees. Sadly, both Pharisees and scribes developed this sort of superior, condescending mindset to the masses of people, particularly those whom they deemed unworthy sinners. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he experienced conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes about his about many things, but particularly about his association with sinners, like is mentioned here, like tax collectors, who were seen as greedy traders who collected money from their fellow Jewish brethren and gave it to the Romans. Such sinners were frowned upon by the religious establishment, but they flocked to Jesus, and many of them received the message about the kingdom of God. And Jesus not only preached to them, but He also associated with them and He ate with them. You might say, well, what's the big deal about eating with somebody? Well, for them, eating wasn't just something that you did when you were hungry to satisfy your hunger, but it was a means of showing association, acceptance, and identification when you sat down and you shared a meal with someone. So Jesus was identifying with them. Now, He wasn't saying that He was a sinner Himself, because we know that's not what the Scripture teaches, but He was saying that He loved them and that He wanted them to be reconciled to God. And so He spent time with them. In contrast, the Pharisees and the scribes who were present on this occasion weren't very happy about this. 
It says there that they grumbled about Jesus' actions of associating with them. In response, Jesus then tells a series of three parables. So keep this in mind, friend. The, the, the stories that we're going to see have a timeless and universal significance. But the original audience that Jesus was sharing these parables for was the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the chief audience. And that's going to help us as we try to understand what Jesus means with some of the things that he says. Particularly come to the parable of the prodigal son. And that story, the prodigal son, represents these people who openly do not keep God's law. Why the elder brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes who were trying devotedly to keep God's law. As Jesus' teaching unfolds, we're going to see that both sons are actually lost. Two sons representing two different ways of being alienated from God. One, with, one is outwardly rebellious. The other one is inwardly rebellious toward God. So let's look first at the two parables that Jesus tells, real brief parables that set the stage for the parable of the prodigal son. The first parable is the lost sheep. So in verse 3 through 7, Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus tells this real simple story about a shepherd who owns 100 sheep. And unfortunately, one of them gets away. So he decides to leave the 99 behind, and then he goes and finds the one lost sheep. This would have been a natural response for people in this day. I'm sure the audience would have heard that and just sort of nodded their heads, yes, that's what he should do. That's a wise thing to do. By the way... When you read that, don't think that somehow he just left the 99 on their own to fend for themselves. He would have entrusted them with somebody else. Sheep would have instantly probably started wandering off or they would have been in danger. So the 99 were safe there, but his, his focus was the one who got away, and so he goes and finds them. Now as the parable concludes, the shepherd rejoices over finding the sheep. He tells his neighbors and his friends, and he wants them to come and celebrate with them. And the story of finding the sheep sheds light on a greater spiritual reality. In verse 7, as it says there, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Friends, if a shepherd will go look for a sheep and then celebrate when he finds it. What Jesus is trying to say here is how much more will heaven rejoice and celebrate when just one sinner repents and turns to God. Powerful view of what happens in heaven, right? Interestingly, Jesus says there's more rejoicing over one sinner 
who repents than the 99 righteous people who need no repentance. What does Jesus mean by this? Is he saying that there are 99 who are already redeemed and so the focus is now just on the one who's been newly redeemed? That's possible. But knowing the original audience, again, I think helps us to see that another interpretation is a little bit more likely. Jesus was addressing, again, the Pharisees and the scribes who regarded themselves as righteous and loved to flaunt their righteousness and their piety before the watching world. However, Jesus was not impressed. He didn't regard them as righteous. Jesus doesn't regard any person as righteous. He said just a few chapters ago in chapter 11 of Luke, he said in verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's none righteous in Jesus' eyes. Scripture would, scripture would echo that. Romans 3.23 says, We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the Pharisees and the scribes were not righteous. In reality, they stood in a kind of even more precarious position because they were like the beaten path that we talked about last week that was very hardened to the gospel message of the kingdom of God where the seed would land on the soil and it would instantly just sit there and the birds would come and take it away. Therefore, I think Jesus is using irony to refer to them as righteous. So going back to the point of the story, when one sinner repents, there is more rejoicing in heaven than the 99 who are really not righteous. God takes more delight in that. The second parable is the lost coin. Let's look at this in verse 8 to 10. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a camp and, excuse me, a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here we have this woman. She has ten coins. She loses one. Probably what Jesus says there was a drachma. It was a silver coin. It was worth a whole day's worth of wages. So this was a significant loss. And so she sets off to find this coin. And her task wouldn't have been an easy task. You see, in first century Palestinian homes, many of the homes didn't have windows. Or if they did, they would have been small. So it would have been pretty poorly lighted and the floors would have been beaten earth, or they would have put stones and joined them together. So we'd have had these big cracks in the ground there. I found it interesting, when I was studying this week, they said that uh, the archaeologists think they found what may have been Peter's home in Capernaum, uh, there in that region. And when they were excavating it, they found coins still in the cracks of Peter's home. This many years, the coins just sitting in there, Okay. So they were very likely just to get stuck in these cracks and you wouldn't find them. But this woman did. She was elated about it. And like the shepherd, she calls together her friends and neighbors to celebrate. And again, we read about this rejoicing in heaven. But notice the focus changed a little bit. Did you catch that? It says there is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels may be rejoicing, but they're not the focus. It says there is, there's rejoicing before the angels in heaven. In other words, someone else is rejoicing 
before them. Who is that? God. God is rejoicing before these angels when one sinner repents. So again, the point is, if a woman loses a coin, valuable coin, searches for it and finds it and rejoices and tells all of her friends and neighbors how much more, well, not just angels in heaven, but God in heaven rejoice over a sinner who turns and finds God. By the way, what a contrast to the Pharisees and scribes who grumbled over these sinners turning to God. They should have been celebrating like God. So despite their outward religiosity, they were far from God's will and God's character. And Jesus' two little brief parables so far is a strong rebuke to their proud attitudes. So now we come to the final parable. Again, certainly the climax of this string of parables that Jesus tells. Uh, It's much longer than the other parables. In fact, it's the longest parable that Jesus tells. But I said, I want to focus here this morning on the prodigal son for the rest of our time here. Read with me, if you will, verses 11 to 16. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, "Father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. So to begin, we see that the son asked the father for his share of the inheritance. Now, according to custom, the eldest son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. He received more to, to care for the father and to care for the estate. And so the son, the younger son, would have received one-third of the estate. Now, this would have been still a pretty sizable amount because the father seems to be very wealthy. I want to say a couple of things about the significance, though, about the son asking for the father's inheritance, particularly why the father was still alive. Friends, the, father's, excuse me, the son's request would have been scandalous in this day and age. He was turning his back on his father. And even though he wasn't the oldest, he still was supposed to care for his father. He was violating the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother by his selfish request. Now, some commentators go so far as to say that he was basically saying, Father, I wish you would drop dead. I don't know that I agree that it is that far. But still, his actions would have been incredibly dishonorable to his father, and it would have brought great shame and humiliation on the family name throughout the whole community. One writer says, well, the boy may not have literally wished his father dead, but his actions show that he did not care for his father or desire a relationship with him. He wanted the father's money, not the father. Even with the division of goods, the younger son would still have had the responsibility to care for his father 
a responsibility he ignores by leaving. So friends, his request wasn't, you know, hey dad, can I have some money because I want to go on a vacation or something? In modern day kind of terminology. This was radically different. And surprisingly, the father grants the son's request. The son's request was a slap in the face of the father, but the father granted his request. Moreover, the son wanted to, since the son wanted to leave the home, that meant that he would have taken the land and taken the livestock and he would have sold all of that to get you know, hard and fast currency. He would have liquidated the assets. You say, well, why would that, would have, why would that matter? Friends, in this day and age, your land was a part of who you were. It wasn't just flipping a real estate thing and making a deal. Your land might have been part of the family for generations, and it was who you were. And so the son was willing just to take away part of the father's identity so he could have that money and go chase his pursuits. That land would have been gone. So the, so the son takes his money and goes to a far country. And I think Jesus was picturing the prodigal venturing out of Palestine somewhere and then going to a Gentile area. And while he was there, it says he squanders his inheritance on reckless living. By the way, the word prodigal doesn't refer to the reckless living, but refers to squandering the inheritance. The word prodigal actually means wastefully extravagant. He spent all his money. Jesus doesn't specify how he spent his money, but I think we can kind of figure out what he did. He was certainly foolish in how he spent it, and no doubt he was sinful in his pursuits. Drinking, gambling, sexual immorality, you can fill in the blank. So as his money runs out, Jesus relates that then a famine arose in the land. Famines would appear in this area from time to time and could just absolutely devastate the population. And so this man, with no more money, he then hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now I'm imagining that as he looked through the classifieds, this was the very last one that he wanted to find. This job would have been utterly repugnant to him. I've only been repugnant just because pigs are pigs. But pigs were unclean animals to Jews as part of the Old Testament law. And though he wasn't trying to keep the Old Testament law, obviously, at this point, I'm sure it was so deeply ingrained in him that pigs were a vile creature for him. And so he would have been disgusted hygienically and morally. And as this part closes out, we read that he longed to eat the pig's food, probably carob pods that they would have fed the pigs. But friends, this food that they fed the pigs was just animal fodder. Humans only ate this when they were in absolutely desperate situations. They would normally never eat this food. And he longed to eat this food. That's how hungry he was. But it says there that no one would even give him the pig food. I think it's safe to say that is what you call rock bottom. Thankfully, the story isn't over. Let's read how the prodigal responds. It says in verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before You. I'm no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Treat me as one of Your hired servants. And He arose and came to His Father. Prodigal comes to himself. He comes to his senses. He realizes what a fool he has been. He is dying, working for a pig farmer, hoping to have their food, and he's not getting anything. And so he realizes that he could return as a hired hand and work for his father and have more than enough bread to eat. So he resolves to go back to his father, to confess his wrongdoing. Now, some commentators think that his confession wasn't sincere at this point, that he was just trying to work a plan of ingratiating himself back with his father. I don't agree. I think he was sincere. I think he was sincere. He wasn't just trying to ingratiate himself. There's no indication in the text. And the fact that he uses Old Testament confession language really affirms in my mind that the prodigal was truly repentant. He was sinning against God. Micah 7.9 says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Psalm 51 recounts David's sordid affair with Bathsheba and after he turned to God in, in confession, it says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So I think like these Old Testament examples, the prodigal realized that not only was he just sorry for the way things have turned out and he was sorry for the way he treated his father, but he realized that ultimately all of his sin was against God. Friends, the parable of the prodigal is such a riveting picture of humanity. Particularly those who don't claim to be righteous. Who don't pretend that they are keeping all of the commands. Who know that they're not right with God. It captures in story form what Scripture teaches. So eloquently. Like the prodigal, we're not content with God, are we? Symbolized by the Father. We're not satisfied with the knowledge of who He is or the many blessings that He gives in our lives, whether it be food and drink or creation or friends and family or even just life itself. And so we think we can find true happiness by setting out on our own. Right? We turn our back on God to find happiness on our own terms and usually sinful terms that are fueled by pride and greed and lust. In the end though, like the prodigal, when we are without God, we find ourselves slopping around in the pig pen. Like the prodigal, each of us needs to come to our senses so that it will lead to repentance. Friends, you know the word repentance literally just means changing your mind, to think differently. Each of us needs to think differently about God. We need to stop wasting the goodness of God that He gives in our lives. We need to stop excusing sinfulness, don't we? That we have sinned 
against God. And we need His forgiveness. And it really does matter. We can't just dismiss God as the great Santa Claus in the sky who doesn't care and He's just here to give us goodies and treats, but that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And He will punish that sin. But there is hope if we will repent and believe in Jesus. Because you see, friend, He came to save prodigals. Luke 19.10, 19, Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, though He's the complete opposite of a prodigal and that He was sinless. This is why He came. He loves you so much and He died on the cross to take away your rightful punishment from God so that you can be declared righteous. Friend, remember that God did not create you to be a prodigal. He didn't create you to be a prodigal. You don't belong in the far country of judgment and despair. God made you for Himself. And He wants you to come home. And the way to come home is to come into your senses really understanding who you are and who God is. But you don't stand in a good spot apart from the grace of God. But that the grace of God also will put you in a great spot if you will believe in who Jesus is. Repent of your sins. Declare your faith in the Lord Jesus. Then the door is always open for those who want to come home. Well, this morning as we wrap up our time here, I wanted us to give a little bit of time for us as a church. You know, I I like to do this because as you look at the New Testament and you see the corporate gatherings, you see that there's teaching, but there's also times of mutual instruction, mutual encouragement as the body builds itself up. And boy, there's a lot we just took in, wasn't there? And as I was thinking and praying about it here this morning, about how we could process this together as a church and build up one another, maybe there's someone today who just has a brief testimony quickly about how you were a prodigal and God has brought you home. I look at my own life. I, I, I was a prodigal. I wasn't off the deep end like that man in the story. But like we sang a few moments ago, and can it be? I was fast bound in sin and darkness. And then God opened. He sent that flame of light into the judgment. My chains fell off and I rose free. Hallelujah.